Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode of our podcast. When advocating for mental health awareness, community involvement is vital. This week's podcast guest, Trent Chapman, is passionate about using his lived experience of mental health challenges to create education and awareness to his community. Now 35 years of age, Trent was diagnosed with depressive disorder at the age of 13 and has been managing his own mental illness since. Trent's methods for delivering the mental health first aid program are far from traditional. Being extremely open in the hope to inspire, Trent uses the power of story to deliver a real and personal insight in order to help participants better understand mental illness. Trent is also the founder of Movement Functional Fitness and Exercise Culture supporting both physical and mental health. He delivers his program, Movement Mere Kids, into schools on the northern rivers of New South Wales, using specific techniques to break down bullying and isolation and create more resilient future leaders. Tune in to this week's podcast as Trent recounts his childhood experiences growing up in Bathurst, battling a drug addiction and depression at a young age, and his experience being incarcerated at 19. Trent also updates us on what he's doing now to champion mental health in different communities, his recent diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and also his current work as a mental health a first aid facilitator. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Um, with me today is a gentleman by the name of Trent Chapman. Trent is a local hero in Lennox Head. Um, which is funnily enough where I reside, but uh, on a typical year, I'm traveling so much, but being around uh, the local community uh, over the last few months has really given me a chance to get to know some great heroes out there that are doing some amazing things in the mental health space. And Trent Chapman is definitely one of those that are uh, leading by example and doing some fantastic things for the community and mental health. So Trent, welcome. Cheers, Sam. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, mate. Mate, all good. Uh, thanks for coming on and, uh, and mate, looking forward to sharing your story and your journey uh, with our listeners and, and what's been happening in your world uh, right up into what you're doing today, which is some really exciting um, and inspiring stuff. So, mate, let's, let's, start, um, let's start back at Bathurst. You grew up at Bathurst? Yeah, mate. Born, uh, bred? Bathurst boys, a country boy at heart, mate. Uh, grew up out over there over the hills and, uh, mate, grew up in a, in a family environment that was... Uh, pretty well consisted just of females, so uh, I grew up without the father figure um, in my life. I did have a, a stepfather that was that sort of came a couple of years after, but um, never really had that connection uh, with the father. But uh, my mother and, and my, my nan and also my aunt pretty much sort of raised me, mate, um, out there in Bathurst. So uh, a lot of care and a lot of care and a lot of compassion, but a uh, bit of a lack of an influence there. Yeah, certainly there. Yeah. 
Uh, and mate, as a, as a kid growing up, um, I mean, what was the part about that missing that fatherhood figure? Was it that um, that you reckon you miss most? Mate, I think the big thing for for me as a young kid was I, I was always trying to work out uh, who I was, and it was really difficult for me to try and. Uh, understand who I was when I didn't really have a model in front of me to try and pull apart and see where what qualities I got from where and uh not having that father figure it was also for me was not knowing who my father was so it was really difficult for me to kind of even try and work out what that character was um what traits I might have got from there and um man I sort of struggled a lot with that in my earlier years I guess when I'm sort of you know pre-teens um didn't really notice it and then when I started to hit those teens, mate, and I went through adolescence, um, I started finding myself in that position where I had to take a little bit more responsibility for who I was. Uh, I was watching my body change. My mind was most certainly changing a lot. And uh, it was at those times of not really having anybody to reach out to, to get that support or, or to get yeah. that guidance from or anyone to sort of take me underneath their wing. And, you know, my mum, uh, bless her, done everything. I think she's done a pretty good job. And, uh you know, very special woman, but you really, males really need males, mate. I've learned, yeah. you know. So um, that was a bit of a challenge, bro, yeah. And it's obviously something that's driven you to start doing what you're doing today, which I'm pretty keen to get into as well at some point. Correct. But, but tell us, uh, tell us what was it like growing up through your teens in Bathurst? Was it uh, pretty clean cut? Was it, was it all? Oh, mate, I wish I could say it was clean cut, but uh, <laughs> no, nah, it wasn't that way. So going through uh, in my primary school, I, I had a lot of trouble with um, attention. So uh, I kind of wasn't that I don't have. A, I've got a quite a good attention span, but I just kind of felt like I sort of saw through a lot of things, and I didn't. I sort of felt like I was being pushed to a bunch of rubbish, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and a lot of things I just didn't really believe in, and it just wasn't who I felt that, that I was. So mate, I bounced around to quite a few primary schools. I went to, to three, three or four, three primary schools from there. Um, and then into high school, mate, I had the same journey. So I bounced around from schools trying to find a place to belong um, and trying to find a place that I actually felt uh, comfortable within. And um, not having that father figure, I sort of lacked a little bit of discipline. And uh, my mum was always fearful, I believed, of, of losing me, as any good mother would be. And uh, she decided to send me to an all-boys school at Bathurst. And that was probably a big turning point for me in that sense. Losing you in what sense? Uh, I think she always felt that I was going to go on, on a journey to find my father or I was going okay. to sort of blame her for not having a, that father in my life, yeah. um, which I don't uh, yeah. uh, by any means. I believe that he probably was a boy himself and probably didn't know how to raise a man um, because he wasn't a man himself. But uh, I've never sort of held that to heart. But going to an all-boys school, pretty full-on discipline school, big rugby school, big old-boys school, you know, a lot of the fellows I went to school with all had uh, fathers that went to the school and um, there was a bunch of things which were really those, you know, the dad and son days um, that I was always sort of sitting on the sideline for those guys there. And uh, just even made simple little things like, uh, you know, I could sit here and talk about sport all day and I get it now. But, you know, I've learned that by spending many hours sitting behind ESPN and the Fox Sports Channel and all yeah. the rest of it, you know, just the, the little things, the rugby codes and, and, and pieces and, uh, gee, yeah, mate, never really felt like I belonged there. So I guess... Uh, my attention spans, again, weren't really that interested. Not really a religious person by any means either, mate. So I, I kind of struggled at that school. Um, and we made a decision. Uh, myself and my mother made the decision that wasn't the right place for me to be. Uh, and we sort of went the polar opposite. We went to a public school that didn't really have any discipline. And uh, things went a bit AWOL when we went there. 
So, uh, so when you say weren't really fitting in with school, was it, it's not. We're not talking about the curriculum. We're talking about just the structure of it, the the peer group. Um, just wasn't connected, mate. Yeah, that's really what I put it down to. I just never felt connected. I I, I just didn't feel like that it was a place for. Me. I just didn't feel like I deserved to be there. Almost, mate. Um, I didn't. I just didn't see myself the same way that I looked at all the other boys in the year and all yeah. the other boys in the whole school. Um, I felt like I was a, a fish in the wrong pond, you know. And uh, that was that was difficult because you got to start to mask up a lot in those moments, you know, um, and try and look the part, if anything. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So when did you end up then at high school? Mate, I ended up moving to the public school uh, out in Bathurst, and uh, you know, mate, I was a I was a young fella there too, and I, I sort of went to a co-ed school, and there was a lot of distractions, just having females around straight off the bat. It was something which I hadn't been around for for a while, um, and also going through that the, the puberty and whatnot as well too. Um, but I found when I sort of got uh, to the other school there, I was definitely hanging with a different demograph that I previously had been. And I wouldn't say that I've ever been a loner. Um, I'm quite independent though. Um, and I kind of sort of, I'm, I'm happy to knock around by myself and, and I'm happy to have people join me. But um, that's kind of stemmed off not really being, uh, not, not really ever being accepted or included um, into another area. And uh, when I got to the school, mate, it was a whole other experience, mate. There was, you know, drugs was a big thing even at 16 at that school. Um, yeah. And some sort of hard sort of drugs, mate, you know. And, um, you know, that was where I was probably first introduced to, to down that road where I, um, where I went on a bit of a journey. With, mate. So did you finish year 12 in the end? Yeah, I did finish year 12 and I'd done it through a, a bit of a broke-up part. Um, I've always been addicted to being active, mate. It's always been something for me that uh, I feel whole in those moments and it's one of those times where I don't feel like I'm looking to belong. I feel like I belong. Um, I've always been pretty good with sports. I've always had a lot of uh, sort of natural talent with that, which has been a big up for myself. And I, um, when I was going through year 11, year 12, I, I just knew uni wasn't for me. Yeah. I wasn't. I didn't like the idea of dragging something out for four years and going into a bunch of debt for it as well. It just didn't make sense to me. You know, yeah. I just thought, why would you do that? Why, why can't I do something short, shortcut that? So, um, yeah, I chose Sam to do a uh, some personal training back then when it was a bit more in depth than what it is now. So it was one day a week at TAFE, and then I just done a bit of uh, a few courses at the school, which involved things that really, really let my personality come out a bit. Um, drama was one thing that uh, the, the public school offered that I couldn't have got at the private school. So I got to explore a bit more of a creative side, I guess, to myself, mate. But um, I did finish year 12, mate, um, but that was just a completion. No, none of the – I think it was a UAI like, they yeah. called it at that point or whatever, yeah. So you've always been passionate about active, um, physically being active and, and, and using your body to feel good and, and belong, like you, like you mentioned, something you've always been passionate about. Mate, correct. I think that – I think – Males have to be physical, mate, in my opinion, you know. I think yeah. that uh, males are most certainly physical. You know, women most certainly are probably a little bit more psychological than men are in that sense. But uh, I believe for a man you have to be physical to, to sort of tap into that psychological. For myself, if I haven't been active, my brain doesn't really work. So how did you, uh, how did you get out of the peer group you were in? Um, I, I would imagine it wasn't easy. No, it wasn't easy, mate. And I, um, sort of, in all honesty, I, I tried to escape a couple of times. I, I actually left Bathurst a few times. So when school had sort of finished out at that year 12, I, um, I, I left and I went to the Gold Coast. 
Uh, being a place where I'd had a couple of holidays, you know, growing up, that was sort of all I really knew. Didn't really know too much about travel at that point. It wasn't really an option. Uh, my family weren't anyone to have travelled uh, by any means. That was never really anything that I knew much about. Um, so, mate, yeah, in those peer groups when I left school, it, it was probably even a bigger time for me where I was really trying to belong. I didn't have a, I didn't have a foot in the door for a university. Personal training was seen as a joke at that point. It wasn't a career or a job by any means. And um, I sort of lacked, I lacked some solid friendship groups around me, I guess, that were in, the, in that same boat. Um, and sort of guess, mate, I, I kind of bounced from one peer group to another peer group and I, I tried to look for, I guess I can understand it now looking back, but at the time I probably didn't realise, but I was looking for some role models yeah. and uh, naturally adapted towards a couple of older fellas, you know, and uh, whilst all these older blokes were, they're pretty good blokes deep down, but they were... They were into things that I shouldn't have been into at my age, um, if ever. And yeah. uh, I started to get exposed and I sort of grew up pretty quick, you know, pretty fast. Yeah, so I guess you, you learnt uh, street smarts, I guess, from an earlier age than, than probably, like you mentioned, that you should, probably should have and exposed to things. Would you, was it more an experimental phase with the drugs or was it something you felt like you were right in um, to the addictive level? Do you think it was... Oh, Sam, mate, to be honest with you, bro, it, it made me feel normal. Yeah. In all honesty, mate, um, when I would consume, you know, certain drugs, and, and a lot of the times these drugs would be seen as stimulants to, to somebody else, it didn't didn't work that way for me. You know, it, it kept me quite balanced, and uh, I sort of turned to it, mate, off the off the back of a bad experience. I um I, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder when I was thirteen, and I was heavily medicated at thirteen. Uh, that led to a lot of side effects off the medication, um, and I guess I think at the time I believed medication was going to fix it and that was all I needed to do um, I was pretty wrong about that mm. and mate off the back of that um, it led me to put on a, a quite amount of weight um, which then sort of led me into some eating disorders around about my body image um, and I sort of be, I, I be, basically sort of became bulimic uh, for a period of time um, and it got to the point mate where I just thought I can't take these meds because they're doing this to me and I started to uh, um, self-medicate with other drugs. And uh, I had one, uh, one bad one, mate, which is a bit of a turning point for me just before school had sort of finished out, uh, where that was the, the first time that I had an attempt on my life. And uh, I'd done that. Uh, I was doing a lot of non-suicidal self-injury leading into that. And then uh, on one particular time, through a, it was more through frustration and anger than anything, mate, within myself, uh, I decided let's just... We'll take this to the next level, mate. And let's just let's yeah. just call it a day here. And um, it, it, it didn't obviously didn't happen all the way through, mate. But I was hospitalised for a period of time after that. Uh, on the back end of being released from hospital, coming out of there, um, there was a lot of professional help, which was aligned for me. But my very first appointment I had with a psychiatrist was in the uh, the main street of Bathurst, which was across the road from the shopping centre, mate. Where uh, on a Thursday afternoon at four o'clock and um, as you're probably aware of, mate, you know, back in the day, the shopping centres on the Thursday, the late night shopping was the hangout spot, you know, and coming out of the uh, psychiatrist all bandaged up with the arm and still quite wounded and uh, a bunch of guys in town that um, were familiar with who I was um, sort of led it to led me into being bullied, mate, pretty hard around about my mental health. So it made me uh, realise that I couldn't talk about this. I had, to say, I had to hide this and then whatever was going on with me was me. It wasn't anybody else, it was me and it was my problem. And I needed to, I, I needed to mask this. And I needed to hide it, and it wasn't something which I ever I brought to the table. What age were you then, Trent? Seventeen. Seventeen. At that point, yeah, seventeen at that point. And then I would say to you, Sam, probably by the age of eighteen, mate, I, um, I was heavily addicted to, uh, to stimulants, to, to speed, 
was the was the, the drug that kind of took me, mate. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, I, I can't relate to a lot of this stuff, obviously. Um, it, well, um, I mean, enormous respect, obviously, for you and and for being where you are now and and what you what you're doing at the moment as a result of what you've been through. But I mean, it must have been easy going through that um, at the time. Uh, not at all, mate. Not a, not easy yet. Uh, you know, it sort of started to feel. I guess life probably does feel to a degree sometimes, but most certainly back then that it was felt like a bit of a movie, mate. And I was playing a character, and that's what I had to do. You know, I didn't know who I was. Um, I spent a lot of time looking external, which I now understand was was something where I was probably looking in the wrong place. Um, I'm a big believer in looking internal with everything now, um, not external, which was a, which was a game changer. But mate, it's uh, it's exhausting. It's exhausting, you know. And uh, I didn't realise now. This is you know at a later date now. Mate, as I sit here with you now, I'm 30, 35, and uh, about six years ago I, I had a diagnosis of a uh, bipolar type one. And uh, geez, doesn't that make a lot of sense to my childhood now? That yeah, I never had the opportunity to to kind of go. I sort of felt like a you know I don't blame anyone. I'm not a victim. Never been a victim by any means. But uh, I feel like the healthcare system could have could have Maybe could have worked with me a little bit better than, than how it went down. Um, you know, Back when you were growing up, man. Yeah, yeah, correct. When I was growing up, mate, and I, and just having that stigma then behind it and not being able to share it. And I think that was probably when I really lacked that father figure as well. So I didn't have anyone that I had, had confidence in to talk to um, or, or to go to there, mate. And that was when I guess when I looked for the, for the older boys. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I got around the older boys and, um, and, you know, one thing led to the next. But then... The older boys kind of moved on, <laughs> and uh, and then I was sort of still left in the in that same that same little dark rabbit hole, mate. You know, which um, how was it uh, for your mum, your auntie, your nan at the time? Uh, I mean, were they trying to help you? Were they could they see what was going on? Mate, they definitely were trying to help a thousand a thousand percent on that one. But their street smarts aren't what my street smarts are either. Um, and when you're really good at wearing a mask, you're really good at lying through things too, mate, in belief of that you're doing the better thing for people. I had an addiction, uh, a very strong addiction that I, that I couldn't deny, but I wasn't going to tell anybody about it. I was a very functioning person with it as well too, mate. Uh, but I guess where I, I almost feel that maybe sometimes there was a bit of a blind eye maybe turned, knowing what was going on but not knowing how to deal with it, not approving it by any means, but just not how to deal with it and... Unfortunately for me, Sam, mate, it got to a point where, uh, mate, I then had to sort of go, I moved, sort of moved from being someone that was a user and, and moved into being somebody that was a trafficker. And uh, that then led me to, to, to spending some time in prison. And uh, when that happens, mate, <laughs> you can't hide anything anymore. You know, everything's out in the cold hard facts to where it all is. Um, and when all that sort of came out, mate, when uh, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty horrific time, that was really difficult for my family because... From the time that I was arrested until the time that I was able to, to cuddle my mother was it was you know was over twelve months before I was even able to do that, and uh, you know it even brings a bit of a tear to me on now, mate, that to think what what they were going through yeah. over that time because all they've ever done is wanted the best and done their best, you know. Um, yeah. How old were you then, Trent? Uh, mate, I was nineteen at that point. Yeah. Yeah, nineteen at that point. How do you feel? I mean, looking back at it. Um, and of course, you said now you can see the signs of bipolar and living, um, you know, living with the pressures, like you ex- the external pressures that you put on yourself, yep. I guess, to some degree. Yep. Looking back at that now, I mean, a lot of this stuff is super 
evident at the moment um, and only exacerbating worse and worse as things are getting along with young people. How, I mean, do you look at young kids growing up now and thinking, wow, um, they need a lot of help a lot more and, I mean, is that a big part of what's driving you today? Yeah, it certainly is, mate. I think I like to take probably not – I like to look at things not so much help but more guidance and I think that what I see coming through um, in my community, in the wider communities, is, you know, I'm seeing a lack of human connection as what I see and that's what I believe I lacked. I see a lot of kids being raised by iPads at the moment, you know. I see a lot of that everywhere where, they, where the time isn't actually invested into them. I believe that the signs and symptoms made it pretty bloody easy to identify <laughs> if you know what you're looking for and if you've been given that opportunity to actually speak up. Um, I feel that we're, we're getting really good, we're getting really good at the awareness, uh, most certainly really good at the awareness around the mental health. But to me, awareness doesn't mean much unless there's action behind it, you know. Um, I do believe that we're getting a lot more pressures in the world, most certainly. I, I think that's only going to continue to grow as well too. Um, but I also feel that maybe we're wrapping up our youth a little bit too much as well too and we're not teaching them an, 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 enough tools to show resilience in their own life so that they can take challenge themselves. I think a lot of the time people look external for somebody else to assist in that problem and I, and I say that with my hand up because I was like that for 15 years thinking that somebody else was going to make me better with this mental illness and somebody else was going to make me better with my values even, you know. But, mate, it wasn't until I, until I realised that it all starts with me, you know, that I've got to take responsibility for that and I need to I need to put my hand up and look for people that can help and that can assist. And I, I believe for the young people at the moment there needs to be more people that are willing to allow the young kids to put their hand up and offer them some guidance. You know, I think we need more role models is what we need, mm. yeah. I mean, how, how do you tell kids? I mean, how do you get through to them? Um, because let's face it, when you're when you're young, I mean, you think you know things are bulletproof, and you feel like you know there's nothing wrong with you. And and I mean, how do we how do we really get through and and break through to them? Um, yeah, reality is it's a good thing for the, for the young guys at the moment because we spend, they do spend a lot of time in a in a different world, you know, in in this digital world, most certainly. Um, gee, Sam, we both could probably sit here, mate, and say, you know, people that were older us than told us that schools will be the best days of our lives and one day you'll understand this, you know, like we're both aware of that. Yeah. But how do we get that message, mate? Well, one of my uh, good friends and, and mentor of mine in, in this local area here has been a mental health nurse, Steve Carey, for a very long time, has taught me a, a very valuable, uh, very valuable uh, um, wording which we use quite often is that, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink it, but you never stop showing them where the water is. And I think that's a very valuable tool, very powerful tool in that sense, that we might be able to go to these young guys here now and, uh, and tell them what we think they might need. But like you say, they, they've got their own ideas and they've got their own perspective on life and uh, they might not be ready for that at that point. But it's super important that that, that door is always open. You know, that we, don't, we don't close that door in that moment. We need to keep that door open. And, and allow that, that if there is a time that that needs to have that discussion or that guidance or whatever, then just being available, mate, you know? Yeah. Looking back on your childhood, um, eating disorders and body image addictions, um, what's when you, what role um, do you think you would have liked to have seen played a little bit more back then, other than obviously the father role model that you feel like you lacked? 
Um, what other what other things do you think would have helped you back then? I mean, was it the teachers' perspective, the schools? Is it is it community? Mate, self. I think it probably comes across all boards, and um, you know, mate, I think anybody that'd be listening to this to the podcast that would be a bipolar themselves would agree when I say that we see life differently. We don't fit into a box, you know, and that goes for a lot of people. And it doesn't need to be men- mental illness involved with that. There's just different personalities and different characters. And when you're being forced into a box that doesn't suit you, then it's it's never it's never going to work, <laughs> you know. There's no progress in that. That's that's never going to allow anybody to move forward. And if anything, all it does is it is it kind of delays development, you know. Um, since moving up to the area here, mate, last twelve years. I do love, you know, some of these other schools that give you that give kids a bit of a different direction. Um, I work in one of the local schools here, Xavier, which is a fantastic school, and I get to go there every Friday. And the guys employ me to come in on Friday and work with Year Nine boys, just to be not a teacher, not a parent, but just somebody that can come in and teach a little bit more around about life's values and life skills a bit. And I think if I would have had that, mate, I think that would have made life a hell of a lot different for myself because I wouldn't have been trying to fit in all the time. I would have been able to be myself. Yeah, it's okay to be different. Correct. Um, Correct. And school's not for everybody. The curriculum, the structure is not for everybody as well. But I, th- I think you, what you said, I mean, they're getting a little bit better these days with trying to adapt to that and yeah. meeting the needs. They are, mate. And I can I can very much speak for a lot of the schools around my local area. Um, and I have quite a lot of conversations with principals and teachers that are, that are in charge. And they get it. They really do get it, you know. Mm. They really do get it. They really do want to make a difference. So... I think I think that we've come a long way, mate. In these twenty years, it's going to be exciting where we go in the next twenty years. Um, but it's just making sure we get that connection of, you know, making sure that what we're putting out there is what we need to be putting out there, and we're making sure that we have the right tools and the right experience, and the right avenues um, to try and to try and make a, a big impact. I guess, mate, and make sure that it works. You know, going back to um, growing up or even living in rural or regional areas. Um, Something that's that's quite common is the stigma around mental health, uh, and of course, everyone knows everyone's cars uh, in small towns. Yep. And when it's just down the main street or in the main street, or uh, everyone can see who's there and what's going on in the daylight. What do you think is a is the solution moving forward for um, for rural areas and and the stigma around mental health? Jeez, it's a good one. I think that. <sighs> If I be completely honest with you, Sam, I think it's going to be really tough to, to move some of those stigmas, really tough. I think it might be a generational thing which might actually make that, make that change. How can we – how could we do something in those rural areas now? Maybe, maybe create more of a community focus that allows people to have a bit more of a, a, a purpose in that community. Um, maybe make them belong a little bit more. Maybe we could change some of the attitudes slightly. Yeah. It's a cultural shift, isn't it? Like to try and get people to understand um, the education and awareness, certainly, but but that whole cultural mentality that, um, you know... Totally, uh, mate. Totally. Harden up, that sort of stuff. I mean, we really need to take a look at that uh, and realise that... Um, not everyone is made of steel. Yeah, and, correct, and it's, mate. O- and it's okay to be vulnerable. Correct. Correct. It, it totally is made. Vulnerability is authenticity, in my opinion, these days. And I think the number one thing that uh, I try and teach people is to stay authentic, you know, be who you are and know who you are and increase your values in the areas that you want to work with in that. But, um, yeah, mate, changing, changing some of the stigmas which, which are there, we, we even know through you 
know, some of our studies that all the work that we're doing, yeah, it is making it a change, but it's not necessarily making a big change, you know. Yeah. So, mate, you're 19. You've come out of uh, come out out of doing some time. Um, yeah, well, that was a challenge, mate. And um, I'll share some things there because I think it's very valuable to share some stuff in there. Uh, so I spent my time in Silverwater, maximum security, um, because of where I was located at the time of where I was arrested. And uh, from there, mate, you go in on the back of the truck, you know, and uh, what, you, what you call a freshie, clean skin freshie, when you go in, rolling on the back of the truck. And uh, even through my police interviews, I was denied medication, my medication, which I would take uh, religiously at the, at the times that I'd need it to. For the depressive? Yes, that was for the depressive and depression at that time. Um, so I had that. And then, mate, coming off the back through the interview, unmedicated through the interview, um, go from there onto the back of the truck, head out towards the prison, arrive at the prison, screaming, absolutely screaming, wanting some meds, losing it, you know. And uh, I was told straight off by the, the head screw when I got there that I was in prison, forget about medication, harden up, exactly what we're just talking about right now, harden up. Uh, I then went from there, mate, and I, I moved into what they call a safe cell. Now, if you're not crazy before you go into a safe cell, you're certainly going to be crazy when you come out. It's a, it's a room about two metres by two metres. It's a padded wall. Uh, there's no there's no, there's no, um, no windows or anything like that. There's a very bright light that doesn't go off. It's on 24-7. And then you have one glass door to a, a lot of your life inmates on the other side who are what you call sweepers that kind of look after the areas. And I had sweepers in there, you know, with the thumb going across the throat telling you what's going to happen when you kind of come out of there. Um, you don't have any phone calls, no contact with anyone. Your food comes in on a paper plate, bunch of sloth. There's no fork, there's no spoon, none of that sort of to eat, mate. So uh, my time in there was was very much. I just had to survive and made it. How uh, long? How long? I mean, time would have been distorted. Yep. Crazy, mate. Crazy. And when you're fighting those demons in that head every minute, and uh, you know, when you're somebody that just wanted to take their life, but you don't have the ability to take your life, yeah. pretty pretty hardcore, man. You know, but. Um, after I was came out, after, after a couple of weeks of coming out of that safe cell, uh, I was lucky that I got to have a visit from my mother and my aunt, and uh, I just had to make it, made a promise, mate, at that time that, you know, you may see me suffer, but you're never going to see me give up, you know. And yeah. uh, I just had to had to harden up. I was very lucky that I, I then went into a cell with a guy who was um, he was the largest importer uh, in Australia at the time, who had previously been inside. This was his second time around. Uh, he told me about the challenges I was going to face when I got out of there, but also the challenges I was going to face when I was in there. Uh, and his, his words of advice were to me, mate, was you need to just train the house down all day, every day, and as soon as you leave here, you need to get back, you need to get into being a PT. You need to focus on your training. He said the only way you're going to survive is exercise, and he said it to me like this, one rep at a time. Yeah. And that's how I live my time in there, mate. And it's still how I live my life now, you know. Yeah. One rep at a time. Yeah, piece by piece, stay in that present moment, you know. It's amazing. I mean, uh, terrible, but amazing, you know, what you've been through with that. I couldn't imagine what that would be like. I mean, t these days, surely they've got to let medication go into prison cells. I think it's a different ball game now. Yeah. It's a different ball game. I was denied, yeah, psychologist, psychiatrist. Um, and that was, that was, you know, in my belief, mate, Knowing the system, and I've got some. I've got some really good friends. One of my best mates, actually, he's a screw, a prison warden, I should say now. Um, and I've learned a little bit through him what it's like on the other side. And I would almost say to you, mate, that that was the decision of those screws at that moment that then decided what my fate was going to be at my time in Silverwater. They were the ones that were telling the mental health team that I didn't need anybody. That there was no need. He, he, he's young. It was he's them a freshie running the show. Yep. 
totally totally mm. mate it was them running the show and we see that mate we you know, we don't turn blind eyes to that we've seen many things on four corners and other places where we we know that yeah. the screws are the ones that are running it you know definitely but um i think the attitudes with that said mate i think the attitudes of the prison wardens these days i think are changing as well too um haven't been in there lately and don't plan on going back mate so i can't tell you i can't tell you too much more than that <laughs> no tell me tell me what it was like coming out of there though i mean oh. how's the transition back to society well, transition was was interesting, mate, because funnily enough, um, I actually, my story is, oh, we could do 10 hours on this podcast if I went through this whole story with you, but uh, I was very unique. So I actually, my time in Silverwater was still all under remand, so I hadn't been sentenced with anything at this time. I was just being held in there because I was a person of interest for such a long time. And uh, uh, in this period of, uh, of actually being uh, inside, I came out on bail. So I had a couple more months before I even went back and I was looking to go back in. It was going to be about a three and a half year stint to go back in for was, was what I was preparing myself for. The toothbrush was packed and that's where we're going to go. And uh, I was very lucky by the, I was very lucky by some of the officers um, uh, that were involved in, in my case that were also, uh, they could kind of, I guess over the time they could see that, they see that I wasn't, I wasn't a criminal. I wasn't built like that you know they could see that i was someone that just got caught up in some games and i was trying to i was just trying to survive you know and uh so they allowed me to get bail because they believed i needed to get some help as well too so i did get some help mate and then i spent three months waiting for my court hearing to go to uh, when i go in mate on, on the day on the court case i'm standing in there and uh talking to the judge and the judge is asking me about my experiences in prison and, and how's that been and, and all the rest of it uh, he also outlined that it wasn't a place for me. I had a, quite a lot of records that came to the table. Uh, my my mum ended up uh, getting a private psychologist to come and see me in prison, so that would be t- taken as one of my visits. So I was allowed two visits a week for one hour, and my mum would get a psychologist and would pay him for a three-hour stint. Um, and my mum doesn't have money or anything by any means. I still don't even know how she done it today. My auntie uh, sold a house to, to be able to help this happen. Um, and, and forever you know, in debt and forever grateful for that, Sam. Um, but I started getting this help made. So when I actually sat there, I was extremely lucky on my day of sentencing on Doomsday that uh, the judge could see that I was a, I was just a kid that was just trying my best, you know, yeah. and I was just – whatever was around me, I was, I was drawing at anything to try and get that help. So I was very lucky I got a suspended sentence, but he didn't give it to me on the day. <laughs> he made me go away for 48 hours to think about it because he wanted to make sure he was making the right decision. So – Mental health ended up coming as a factor and that was because I had a lot of hospital records from growing up, um, from being hospitalised with, with my suicide and also with my feelings and my thoughts and, and behaviours and that. Um, so then I was I was given the green light but I had to, I had to behave myself for three and a half years. So I was on a good behaviour bond for three and a half years, which, oh, mate, you might as well be in there, <laughs> to yeah. be honest with you. You go to the police station on a daily basis to check in and then it starts to funnel down to a couple of days a week and then it goes to once a week. But... You're still attached, you know, you're still a part of that. Um, I went for two jobs, mate. I got two jobs. I actually was given two jobs uh, and then the background check went through and then those jobs didn't come to life. Mm. So that for me, mate, was when I realised that, hey, you know what, Every, a lot of things in black and white do matter and I need to get a fresh start. I need to go somewhere where I haven't been before, mate. And uh, I looked at the map and there was a couple of key things that were important for me. One was I needed to be by the water. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm an Aquarian or, or how it works, mate, but water makes me feel at home. And two was I needed to go to a town where there wasn't a police station. And uh, this is why I'm in Lennox Head, mate. And this is where it started on that journey to come back here. 
Um, when I got here, mate, it was a rough trot. Pretty much bar work or PT was about all you could kind of get, you know, um, yeah. especially with the record. And it wasn't so much the record, it was the three and a half years hanging over my head still, you know, on that good behaviour bond. Um, but there was a gentleman in Lennox Head that, that um, is a bit of a local, a local guy in town here who's seen that I was out to prove something and I was out to prove something not just to myself, um, I was out to be a better person. And he really took me under his wing and gave me the opportunity and employed me in my first, my first ever full-time job uh, at Lennox Hotel, first ever full-time job. And uh, through him and through a bunch of other good people that I met in this area, I found the right role models, you know. I found the right people to actually be able to, to allow me to, to create myself and to allow me to, to grow into a man and to have the proper men around me that are the real deal, you know that could influence me and it could rub off me and also offer me guidance, mate. Um, so when I came to Lennox Head after that, it was like a gift from God, you know. Like I still to this day, Sam, I've, I've, I've left here a couple of times, mate. I've travelled 65 countries in the last 11 years. Um, I'm trying to make up for a bit of lost time, I suppose, in a few things and I just, you know, travelling wasn't anything I grew up with so it was new to me so I, and I love it. Um, but everything brings me back here, mate. It always brings me back here. There's something special about this place. But more importantly, it's the people in this that are in this place that that are, that are special, you know. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, I agree. <laughs> I mean, I I wouldn't live anywhere else either. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's really, uh, I mean, what a what a story. I mean, uh, it's just incredible to hear um, not only what you've been through, uh, but also some some of the amazing things that you've done along the way and people you've met and how that's changed and transformed your life. Tell me, I mean, as you go, as you look back to, to that transition from prison to society, mm-hmm. what do you think needs to happen that gives people a, a chance? I mean, do, do you think there needs to be something done? I personally personally think, mate, that the, uh, that the, <clears throat> the war on drugs is a big part of the problem, big part of the problem. I believe the war on the drugs needs to go and it needs to go right now. People that are like myself, mate, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't wake up and want to be addicted. I didn't choose to be addicted, you know. Addiction, I fell into addiction. I didn't know how to get out of addictions. I was, I had mental, my own mental health problems with, with bipolar, with trauma. Um, addiction was a whole other ball game. But where do you put your hand up, mate, when you've got these problems? Like how do I go and tell somebody that I'm, that I'm addicted to a, a stimulant that I need to take every single day to feel normal or to try and even get through the day? Because I'm looked at as a criminal, you know. Um, I see, I believe in, in my opinion, man, the prison system, I can tell you now, 90% of the boys that are in there, it's all drug related, you know. Yeah. Um, I would much rather see the money that they put into the war on drugs put in to actually allowing people the ability to openly discuss drug use for their own recreational use or whatever it might be, but to actually establish places where then people can go and get help for it maybe even places where they might even be able to help people that are coming off the back of addiction or coming out of the back of places, whether it be a rehabilitation or whether it be a prison, but help these guys. that We're living in a bit of an entrepreneurial world these days, so let's teach some guys a couple of life skills. Let's maybe help manage into some maybe some small micro lines and get micro, micro loans and get a couple of businesses up and running, you know. Let's not push these people out of society. Because you're spot on with what you said there, mate. I go in, I do the time, I come back out, and I've got to try and be accepted again. I've got. I've, I'm, a, I'm a. I'm a criminal. Is how people see it. And if you, I don't care what anyone says, mate. People make judgment on that straight away. Very much straight away in that. If we can bridge it, that so our people don't become disconnected. Because 
you know, the, offer, the opposite of the addiction, mate, isn't being sober. You know, it's being connected is what it is. We all, people in the game, we all know that. Connection's everything, you know. So we need to keep people connected. We don't need to remove people from these things, you know. Um, and I believe that most certainly we could have programs where we could actually integrate these guys. So why not? Some pretty cool stories, man. I've heard some pretty, you know, I've heard yeah. some pretty amazing stories in those places. And why not have these guys come out and work with our youth? You know, why not have these guys come out and share their experiences and give them uh, the tools and, and whatever else might be needed to bring this stuff to life, you know? So you're saying uh, we should be looking at um, trying to legalise more of the drugs? Um, it should be all legalised, mate, in my opinion. And then put the money, you're saying, towards rehab centres and stuff. I mean, would well, that... Are you you're saying that would lessen the burden? 100% because what I, in my belief, in my belief, if we legalise drugs, right... Uh, and decriminalise won't work. Legalise it, and you can and you can you can still make it so it's personal use. You know, so we're not promoting drug sales as such, but make it so that it's, people have the opportunity to use that if they want to recreationally. And if we start doing that, then what will happen is we'll start to manufacture these things ourselves. So we'll actually know what greater quality is in there. We'll know how strong things are. We'll be able to advise people on how much to take, what to take, when to take, how to take it, if they choose to do that. But above anything, Sam. We get rid of the black market. The black market's gone. It's no need for the black market anymore, mate. And the black market is where the problems come from. That's what it all stems about. So instead of fighting all these wars and trying to bring down the black market, let's legalise it. Let's make sure we put a couple of a, um, we, you know, we've got to do this to safe, the same as what we do with alcohol and cigarettes. And like, there's no advertising on these TVs. There's nobody, uh, you know, making it an attractive to draw people in. We can't let people try and pick customers and things like that. But we can most certainly make it a, make it so that if people did want to use it for their recreational use, because nine out of ten people will use it for recreational and won't have a drama, and they might do that they on their Christmas party once a year or whatever it might be that they do. But that one in ten mate that becomes addicted, they didn't go sign up to be addicted. They might have been at that Christmas party themselves, and now they've got this problem. But where do they get the help? And when the addiction gets strong, just like my story, mate, you need to fuel more into it. When things have been made in backyards and I've been around all these places, I know how it's all made, I've seen it all made before, it's not, it's not, it's nasty, you know. And mate, we only have to look back 100 years ago before the war on drugs started, you know, you used to be able to go and buy this stuff at the chemist. Maybe not Australia wasn't developed at that point, but Europe, America, other areas around the world, it was always legally purchased over through a, um, through the counter, you know, and it's monitored, we know what it is. But it's just removing that, removing that, that negativity in our community of that black market, remove the stigma of that drug and change that to people can make their own decisions. And as I said, six, 65 countries I've traveled now and I've been in countries where they've done it. Yeah. Incredible, incredible, you know? It's really interesting. I mean, the other thing is it's amazing how many people are high functioning uh, with, the use, with drug use throughout the day. Correct. That you wouldn't probably even know. Correct. Mate, we see now, um, we're talking around about, you know, ketamine, we're talking about MDMA now being used for PTSD, just, you know, in that micro-dosing because yeah. we can monitor it again and it's not just getting a bag from the bloke down the road and you don't really know what's in it, you know. It's all monitored and we can see these benefits from happening because, it, you know, at the end of the day, you know, drugs, they, they take you to a bit of a different realm. It takes you to a bit of a different, different consciousness is really what it is, you know. And, mate, we've seen... You think, see things have been in Peru with ayahuasca and like life-changing drugs, you know, that just change the way that people's whole life and it might just be that one experience that they may actually have, you know. But um, treating, drug, treating drug takers, so not, 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 not drug dealers, but drug takers as criminals is not 
in my opinion, not, not, not the way to go about it. And it's, it's a dead end. Because the immediate thought is that by making it more accessible and legalising it, would it create more addictions? Or you think it'd be the opposite? Polar opposite, I reckon. Yeah. Polar opposite. Because like most things um, that we know too, Sam, mate, a lot of people have a perception of what they think something is. And then as soon as they're educated around it, it's like, oh, that wasn't exactly what I sort of thought that was. So we, if we legalise it, we open the door to start education about it. Where right now it's just no, 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 no. That's all yeah. it is. So like, how are we moving forward? You know? And mate, but some of the things in these drugs, I mean, like that, that ice, they reckon there's like rat poison and... Totally. Um, totally. Like acid or, or something, chlorine or something that's in this stuff that people are taking. I mean, it's... That's, and that's because that's your black market backyard, mate. And, you know, things... Uh, don't, don't get that I'm condoning anything by any, by any means, no. mate, either. Um, it's just that bridging that gap from that criminal world to the, to the real world is drugs, is, is drugs isn't the problem. The law behind the drugs is the problem. The hard stand behind it. There's no compassion behind it at all. Mate, somebody who might be a, uh, addicted to ice at the moment, I guarantee that wasn't, that wasn't what they wanted to be doing, you know. And you're right. I mean, I've seen it all before. Rat poison, fluorescent light, all kinds of stuff that you see in the back of these things here. Totally. But if, if, these, other, if these drugs that people were using were manufactured under, in, in uh, monitored laboratories where everything was there, that they could be monitored, they could be weaned off things, you know, because they would know what percentage or what potency this could be, you know. It, just, it, it, it creates opportunity, in, in my belief, of, of a bigger picture of moving forward quite quick. Now you, you, you know, you look at a, um, well, the Netherlands is always a great, a great place to look at things. You know, in the Netherlands, everyone kind of knows it as cannabis. Not many Dutch people over there, you know, are involved with cannabis by yeah. any means, you know. It's a, um, yeah, yeah, mate, that's, that's, that's my view on it anyway. That's it's my it's view. really interesting, um, really interesting, and I think... Uh, yeah, as I said, I can't relate to what it's like to come out of prison and get a job. But certainly there seems to be a bit of stigma around that uh, as well and um, looking for ways to utilise um, some of the lessons learnt from these people, like you said, and get them out to the community. Very uh, valuable people, man. Life experience is, is so valuable. I mean, we've all, we've all got a story, you know. Everybody sort of has their own story of, um, of their hard knocks or of their whatever it might be. But um, mate, what we're doing right now, sharing. How much do you learn when you share? You know, yeah. I can encourage that sharing, not to not to be ashamed of that. You know, not to feel shame and not to talk about those stories. You know, well, mate, it's like um, it's like the movement of uh, of lived experience and uh, coming into the mental health sector. I mean, yeah. it's nothing with them uh, about them without them uh, yep. i mean having their voice at the table and they've been playing such an important role in getting out there be, and make people seem to relate to them totally because they've been through it they know what it's like uh, and they can tell their story with their hand on their heart probably no different to someone maybe who's been in prison and can come and also teach some life 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 skills correct. To, to kids correct and even in that i mean straight away there sam the first life skill i think that you'd tell or you teach, sorry, when you uh, when you when you work off lived experience, is vulnerability mm. straight away. Especially as a male, showing that vulnerability in a room, people pick. You know that, mate. I know that. Every, we, we're, we've been in those situations before. People adapt to that. They pick up on that. And when one person's been vulnerable in the room before, well, you start to see the domino effect starts to happen, mate. You know. And when we start to become vulnerable, that's when we become authentic. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm keen to get to that uh, and we're going to get to that shortly with what you're doing now and the great work you're up to. Um, 2012, I mean, this stuck out for a reason. You raised 27 grand for Shake It Up, a charity for Parkinson's. Uh, your nan uh, has Parkinson's. Um, I'm not sure where, where that's at. This is 2012 that I, I read yeah, about this. Yeah, correct. Mate, you were walking from Brizzy to Sydney um, <laughs> and that wasn't the bit that got me, even though that's quite an achievement. <laughs> it was the next bit that I saw with a 15 kilo whippersnipper. Yeah. And I thought, well, mate, anyone that's doing that wants attention and with your, uh, with what you were doing for the right reasons, just tell us a brief. A brief yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> you've done, you done your homework there, Sam. <laughs> um, mate. I giggled, mate, when I read it. I'm like, <laughs> I would have been crazy. To, it would have been amazing to see you walking down the highway with a, with a whippersnipper on your back. Mate, it was different. It was different. But um, what had happened from there, mate, when I did move up to Lennox Head, uh, the same gentleman which I speak of that um, I really drew to that sort of took me under his wing and gave me an opportunity, him and his brother uh, are in business in town and uh, his brother had Parkinson's disease. And uh, for the boys, it was all right, cool well, what do we got to do to get rid of it, you know? And uh, they realised that there wasn't much happening in regards to the research for the cure. There was a lot of things around about uh, how to manage it, but there was nothing there in regards to the cure. So they started the charity Shake It Up, which is out of Lennox Head here as well too, which you're probably familiar with. Um, and when the guys started that, they were just trying to get it off the ground, you know? We need to get some exposure, needed to get heard. So having my own personal touch with my nan, she was diagnosed uh, in her early 50s and she's been... A, massive part in my life a huge part in my life and she's still alive to this day she's in a oh, nursing good. home now with palliative care but um i was like i only just caught up with her last week just for a brief half hour but it's it was nice at the moment that's where you can get in at COVID at those places yeah. um and she's still out in bathurst out there but uh i could see these boys were doing something great and i i know these boys they get results these boys you know these boys get results and that's that's what they're about yeah um, and you don't have any doubt in that so I spoke to my nan one day and it was on her birthday and I called her for her birthday. And uh, at the end of that conversation, it was only a very brief conversation. Um, it was in between a little little uh, dinner break or work break at the pub. And uh, I just told her all the best, you know, happy birthday as you do. And, and she said to me that she just, she said, that's enough. I don't want to be, I've had enough. I'm, I'm sick of it. And uh, me being quite, you know, ignorant, I suppose, said, you know, it can't be that bad. And she said to me, you just don't know what it's like, you know. That was where the conversation ended. So for me, I sat on that for a couple of days and I thought, yeah, you're 100% correct. I, I, I don't know what it's right. I don't, how can I sit here and tell you that, hey, it, it'll be right. I don't know what it's like. So I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to my best to put myself in my nan's position. So that's where the whippersnipper comes from because I needed something to shake with me the whole time. I also needed to have a bit of extra weight onto my joints. I needed to be uncomfortable. My nan told me that she would see that people would look at her and laugh. So I thought I'm going to make people laugh at me. I'm going to make people <laughs> look at me and laugh. I wanted I wanted to worry just all, exactly what it was like for her. But my take home message for my nan was: there's boys doing some stuff here, nan, that I guarantee will get a result. I need to do something to show you just to hang in there, just to hold on. And it wasn't to do with the Parkinson's. That was to do with depression and other suicidal thoughts and things that come along with that, you know. Yeah. So, mate, I, um, I pitched the idea to a couple of people uh, up at a board meeting up in Brisbane. And as you could imagine, everybody laughed, you know. Uh, but one lady didn't. And that lady, she was there on lived experience in this meeting. And she'd been suffering for a long time and also suffering from depression. And she said to me, and how serious are you? I said, dead serious. She's like, all right, I'll do it. I'll drive a support car for you. Let's do it. 
So I went and made a phone call the very next morning to try and find a whippersnipper. And as, as fate would have it, uh, this company, great company, Parklands, down in Coffs Harbour, um, called them. And they're uh, the founder of their, they were 1956, I think they started. And their founder had stood down in 2010. And um, he stood down because of Parkinson's. Oh, and he well. wasn't aware of anything happening um, that anyone was looking for a cure. So he said to me, all right, mate, you want to know what it's like to have Parkinson's? You've got 28 days to organise it. You've got 28 days to do it. And he said, I'll pay for whatever needs to be paid for, mate. You go and do it. So I had 28 days to organise it and uh, I only just started a new job two months before and had to go up to Brisbane to the office, tell the boys up there that oh, I yeah. needed, needed a month off and they told me that oh, your job's not here if you do that. That's okay, mate. Family's bigger to me. That's cool. Yeah. And I was down the highway, half hour I got the phone call and they said, no, your job will still be here, mate. Go and do what you got to do. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, so 28 days later, mate, September 2012. So you didn't have this thing going the whole time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you had, you yeah, had, had the motor was yeah, on? Yeah. Oh, mate, I'll give it a, a – if you're ever looking for a whippersnipper, get a, a, a Tanaka because <laughs> the thing didn't stop, mate. Just kept on going. Were you, rev, were you giving a few revs? Yeah, I was giving heaps of revs, yeah. <laughs> it was it was crazy, Sam. Like I left up there at the um, – is it the Gabba? Is that what they call it? The Gabba in Brisbane? Gabba, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Up, in the, up at the Gabba up there and there's a few news mobs turned up and whatever else and <laughs> – there we are, and off I'm walking through the city, and I think people thought, mate, this guy is, he's out of control. Like, what's going on with this bloke? You know, the coppers turned up twice, find out what, why I was walking the street with a whippersnipper, and <laughs> then I hit the highways and a bunch of that. But uh, by the time I came down to just over the border, mate, which is only four days in, I was wrecked. Like, yeah. when I say wrecked, I mean I was wrecked. I just, I'd, I bit off more than I could chew, you know, and it was a matter of what am I going to do here? Um, and I felt that I might have just needed a little bit of, I might have just needed to see a little bit of home, you know. So stupid me decided to add an extra 80 k's of the trip and, and veer off and turn in through Byron and, and come down the old coast road here and make my way through Lennox. And uh, as, as we both just established to you, mate, Lennox is a very special place. I had uh, three of the schools all lined up, all the kids all lined up, a bunch of people in town all came out. Oh, and uh, good. when I said that support, I realised this just has to happen. You know, I just have to see this through. I've got to finish it now. There's, there's no turning back. I've got people behind me, you know. Hey, did you wear a sign on your back that said honk for a rev or something <laughs> like that? Well, because of the, we had a heap of media. It went Kyle and Jackie O. Were, they were pretty big on ringing every couple of days, Sunrise, a bunch of mm. other people. So it seemed to, to work out in the, wherever I was, like the local papers or Rondo <laughs> or whatever. So I had beeps going here, there, everywhere. And I had a couple of moments where I actually probably regret a few moments because I had people pull over to talk to me and I was just so disciplined on getting from A to B in a time frame because I kind of my head operates a bit like that. But I started, I was a little, uh, I wouldn't say I was rude, but I was probably just a bit short when people wanted to share. So yeah. after a few days of realizing that when I left here, I thought oh, I need to slow down a bit and I need to enjoy this journey. I need to not race to the finish line. I need to enjoy this journey. And if I can uh, impact people along the way, um, and just by being a set of ears for people to tell me their story, as long as they want to walk so we keep moving, <laughs> then, then no worries. And, uh, yeah, mate, they started following. <laughs> I remember 2012. I mean, the, the highway on the left-hand side never looked better. No, mate, <laughs> it was all trimmed up. It was, it was no, there was no overgrown grass. It was magic. Mate, I remember I, I finished down in uh, the Sunrise Studios down there and um, Jessica Rowan, I forget the gentleman's name, O'Keefe, is it there? As soon as I finished, he told me to turn around and go back up the other way. Make sure it was even. <laughs> <laughs> even up the sides. Yeah. Classic. So, mate, uh, so, I mean, you've, you've done some wonderful things in the community, Fluoro Fridays, you've, you've done 
other fundraisers, um, Movement Me Kids, I think is what you're doing yeah. as well. But if we start with the mental health first aid, you've been, uh, I mean, it's probably something you're more currently doing. Uh, what what led you to want to be certified as an instructor with mental health first aid? Well, what how that actually um, all came about, Sam, was mate, six years ago when this bipolar was presented to me by a couple of very close friends. Um, one of them himself had suffered bipolar and that was where it, that's where it came from. He's a bipolar type two. Um, and he sort of pulled the boys aside and said, hey, I'm noticing this stuff in Chapo. I think it's, we should have a chat with him. So we had a chat and I didn't, I had no idea what bipolar was. Never even heard of it really before. I thought, isn't that a split personality thing or something like that? So I went on a bit of a mission just to try and learn as much about it as I could, um, was where my, I respected the boys for, for pulling me aside. And after only a matter of probably two weeks, it was just, there was too many pennies were dropping everywhere, you know, they're all over the place. You hadn't been clinically diagnosed. I hadn't been diagnosed okay. at this point, no. So then uh, I went through to the Black Dog Institute uh, and we got the diagnosis through through those guys. And then at that point, it was like, all right, I kind of get this a bit now, but I need to learn more. But how am I going to get people around me to understand this stuff? Because it's it's not hard, it's not complex, but there's a few layers to it, you know. Um, and you need to have a you you need to want to know to to really care about it. It's a bit deep, a bit, little bit more depth than you know anxiety or depression, you know. So um, I looked into a couple of things. I done a few online courses, went to a couple of different courses, but then I done a mental health first aid course over the, the twelve hours over the two days. And the whole time I just sat there, I just I'd never been in a room that was more relative to me, mate, in my whole life. And that had happened. And the lady um, who had taught the class, she was really quite good. Um, but it was very much out of the textbook. And I thought to myself, wow, we're missing a lot here though. You know, there's a lot of things that we're missing in, in here that could be added. So um, I sort of went away from that and I thought about it for a bit. And then I thought, I'm going to try this. I'm going to apply. So I applied to become an instructor and a trainer and I went through a bit of a process with that. And then I was given the green light to go over to Perth and do some study over in Perth, um, some in-class in training. And I uh, came out of the back of that, mate. And then uh, funnily enough, I bumped into um, Steve Carrig, who's the gentleman I do a lot of work with now, who was one of my first clients in my boot camp when I first came back up here. He got the email across the desk to say there's another uh, mental health first aid teacher in town. Go and connect up with um, go and connect up uh, with him. So we bumped into each other. I said, mate, I really need a mentor in this space. I really need someone to teach me the ropes because I don't really I don't know much about this at all, and and uh, I want to make an impact. So, mate, he took me under and um, unfortunately we had a lot of bushfires and floods and things that have happened uh, around the area. So there's been a few grants that Steve-O would get through his work and then he would uh, be able to bring me along as a second facilitator. And, mate, started doing that, loved it. So it was really for me around about what is the place that what's – the, what's the benchmark that everyone should do, in my opinion? And it's, teen, it's, it's mental health first aid, 100%. From that one now, Sam, I'm very proud to say, mate, and I really loved this part about it, but – it's now developed uh, a teen mental health first aid. So I'm now working with um, the ex-deputy principal from up at Byron High and also a lady, um, Lisa Hopwood, from out of the, out of the buttery. Um, and we're working together and we're delivering this program into 10 schools in our catchment at the moment. And that was through a community grant. Um, and we're very confident that we're going to see that continue through. So uh, the mental health first aid coming out of Melbourne uh, most certainly identified where – the prevention, as we know, prevention is where we need to play in this space and there's no better time to be teaching these guys when, when the brains are fresh and and, uh, and that's sort of where I spend a lot of my time in those two now, mate, yeah, to the adults and also to the kids. What's the, uh, 
what, what's some of been the challenges? While you, I mean, you've been instructing this course for how long now? Uh, five years now. Five yeah, years. Five, five years for the adults and 12 months for the kids, yeah. Teens. I mean, what are you seeing as some of the challenges that you're looking at with... Not being prioritised, but I get it. I understand why it's not being prioritised because I understand life is busy. Um, I, I also understand that a two-day, 12-hour course is, is time-consuming as well too. I get that. Um, but I just think it needs to be prioritised more, mate, in my opinion. And I, I would, I'd be led to believe things like... You know, we have a physical first aider in every workplace. Why don't we have a mental health first aider in every workplace? You know, in every school and every sport team and all these other places so we get the guys in the community. Um, that's been a big challenge, mate, uh, uh, for that. And I'd probably nearly say that's probably the only real big challenge, you know. What about funding? Like, I mean, if, if, if you're a parent of a kid um, or a child going to school and you want to know how to have a conversation with your kids about mental health for education or awareness for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, is this something that the government should be subsidising a lot more? I mean, tell me about – yeah, because it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap, mate. It's not – and it's, um, it's very interesting, that question, because I've asked myself that question many times. Shouldn't the government be doing something? Shouldn't we have something? The reality of it is, mate, mental health is on us, you know. It really is. Um, and I think it comes down to the people that are in the space being able to share – their learnings i think it needs to be a little bit of creativity um around how you do that um actually i'll share something with you which is just relevant to today mate and it's relevant to our community but there's a there's a fantastic crew of lads here in lennox which you've probably heard of the the healthy minds club which have just come um they've just formed just recently got some excellent momentum behind them i've just had just prior to coming out to have this conversation with yourself um had jackson come around one of the boys one of the four pillar boys that, that are behind the start of this and he come around and the conversation was around about how do we now get the boys educated? So what we're looking to do, I'm looking to do with the boys is as opposed to be raising money and sending money to a lot of these organisations where there's high admin costs, um, lovely organisations, don't get me wrong, but there's some people that are on some big money in those organisations and how much gets to the community is a different level. So we're working a program together where we're actually going to uh, raise our money out of our community and then we're going to put that money back out for our community so that there's no reason or anyone uh, within our community not to be able to attend if it's cost related. So we want to make sure we cover that. And that was something which was done as well. We've recently done that myself and Steve-O and had done that as well too uh, for a group of gentlemen in town called the Golden Oldies, which is an old bunch of blokes that, uh, that get together on a Wednesday. They play touch footy. They're not the best at it anymore, you know, but they get out and they have a run around. They, they sort of play together. Um, and there was a fundraiser through that where we were able to – Dave Arthur sort of manned that one – um, local Lennox guy, and we put together seven or eight courses, mate, of money which we raised over just one luncheon. Yeah. So I think that um, in answer to how do we do it, what do we do, should we go? I think we've got to forget about the government. Personally, I think we've got to take it back into our communities a little bit, mate. Um, and I think we need people to stand up in the communities and yeah. we need people to speak up and we need people to be vulnerable. But then not only that, we need to get some leaders yeah, in our communities. And I think that's – I can definitely say for our community that's happening – you know, um, but we really need to get, see that in other other communities. We've spoken about the challenges of it. What, what's been the best part of it? The best part, the best part, the best part for me would be probably when I finish the course up. On a personal note, the, the shaking of the hands from I can pretty well guarantee every single person in the room, the look in the eye, and just the gratitude of. Just the information you've shared has really helped them and you can see it. And then 
you might that could be a follow-up of two three four weeks later where you might get an outreach through an email or a, a facebook or whatever saying can you guys come and do this for us at my workplace or this so to know that it resonates and to know that that impact is lasting um is great and on top of that mate i can i can personally tell you that i've used it what i would believe using what i would normally what i would teach to somebody the same thing that was taught to me i believe that there's probably on three occasions a life is saved so that's the that's the ultimate reward you know that's amazing yeah ultimate reward are you still learning as you're going through this right i would obviously i would uh I'd be lucky to say if I knew 5% of anything, mate, and that's in, across the board. And, yeah. I, and I believe that that's an important thing too. I believe it's important to not think that you know everything because everything's always changing and everything's always evolving. And I believe the moment that you think you know everything, you stop learning. Um, big believer in two ears and one mouth. You talk, you're saying something you already know. You listen, you're going to learn. So, mate, no, nah, there's so many. And I'm, and I'm excited for that as well. Yeah. Mate, what a great answer and response. What what change what change are you hoping to achieve? Like what 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 are you what's Trent Chapman looking to do with this yeah. stuff that you're doing? I've, I feel that Sam that I've I've found this real passion, mate, into in with men. I've found this real passion with men, not only with younger men, but uh, just men of all shapes and sizes. I would like to play an impact in men's lives and help them understand what a modern day man is and in my opinion a modern day man needs to hold the same values that we've evolved from and we need to be physical we need to have purpose in our community we need to play a role but i also believe that the modern day man needs to be vulnerable they need to be willing to learn and not be a know-it-all as well too and uh, they need to probably push a little some egos aside but more importantly they need to take responsibility and for the man taking their own responsibility really needs to dive deep inside. Um, and for me, I would just like to be able to help build better men, you know, uh, no matter what level that might be in. Um, I've got a bit of a passion at the moment in really wanting to connect men again that may have, that may have uh, been disconnected through whether that be they've dedicated their life to their job you know and all of a sudden it's 20 odd years has gone it's moved by or they might have had things in their life that haven't gone and just connecting they might come out of addiction and whatever it might be mate but uh i think in this day in this world we live in they tell us we're more connected than ever i think we're probably more disconnected than ever so my goal is to connect men with men and make and allow men to be better men and you're doing that through your school program as well yeah, I, I believe that that's the future. So I like to get in with the I like to get in with the young guys. I focus just on my community and, and nowhere else at this point. I'm, I believe if you can change your community, then maybe you can change the world. But you probably should start with your community before you try and change the world. You know, and uh, I know that a lot of the guys that I work with now in this area, as we as we both know, not many people are going to leave here. You know, so yeah. the guys I'm investing in them at the moment. So this is going back to you know you you can lead a horse to water, you can't make a drink, but you never stop stop showing where the water is. So these guys at the moment, while they might not be needing any support or any guidance at this point, maybe at a later date, they will. I want to make sure that, that I'm there for them in those moments and make sure that I'm available um, for those guys as they grow up. Um, and I'll continue to try and work that cycle. Work you know? cycle yeah. 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 What other tools or solutions, uh, before we wrap up, um, do you think will help? Um, we, we mentioned the... 
the role that community plays and getting out there and doing the work, not waiting for it to happen or come to you. Uh, what else do you think will help create awareness education to help reduce the stigma around mental health, to reduce suicide rates? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, geez, it's, a, it's a very big open question and a, um, a lot of angles. And I think, I think I'm right in saying that little things matter. All the little things matter. The little conversation of talking around about mental health, checking in with your mate, the little thing of maybe not watching the blockbuster movie but watch the documentary about the mental health, maybe the uh, take going and actually understand a little bit more about nutrition I think is a big one. We, we talk a lot about the head and the heart but we forget about the gut, you know, that brain to gut connection. I think there's a lot of value in looking in through to the end of the gut. Um, I think, you know, our sleep, our water, our good environments, our purpose. I think purpose is a massive one for, for everybody. You have to have purpose. Um, for a lot of us, just going to work might be the purpose, but that's okay. Whatever purpose is, when we lose that purpose. But Sam, I would say, mate, the little things matter. All the little things matter. So whatever those little things are that any of us can do, if we're all doing those little things, that's going to be a big change. Especially as it relates to connection. Correct. Correct. You're a personal trainer here in Lennox. Uh, you've always been a big believer in moving your body. The link between physical and mental health is something that uh, you're clued on to back in, uh, in prison um, by your cellmate. Tell us how much that means to you and how much you feel it's, it's important for people. Oh, it's, it's, it's everything, mate. It's, it, it honestly is absolutely everything. If I, uh, if I give you an example, the world we live in today wasn't the way that we're designed was isn't the world we were designed to live in you know if we look back don't have to go too far but we back look through our evolution and what did we do you know we roamed we seeked we're outdoors we're always active we were never sitting down you know sitting's the new cancer you know we never sat down we're always active we're always moving um we also done things along the lines of we would eat when we found fuel where we eat now like as a luxury several times a day you know and you've got to fuel your body the right way but we expect especially men but all of us but in particular men most certainly but we have to be physical and if i could give anybody any word of advice is get to bed by 9 30 get out of bed at 4 30 train for an hour and there's a big difference between exercise and training exercise is what you do on your days off training is when you're doing something with a purpose you know you're there for endorphin releasing purpose you need to do that get that out of the way do a meditation, listen to a book for 15 minutes and by the time it comes to 7.30, you, you, you've, all, you've set yourself up in the best position you possibly can to attack the challenges of the modern day world. You've already won your day in that instance, haven't Correct, you? Correct, mate. Correct. Yeah. You're not chasing anything then, you know. Mate, it's been really interesting. If people want to get in touch with you, Trent, how would they get about um, getting hold of you? Oh, Probably the best way to go um, for getting about myself is movement functional fitness is, is where I operate a lot of things under. Social media contacts is, is probably the best way. Yep. Um, I'm currently in the process of just building a, a web page at the moment. But uh, at, uh, if you ever hear about this uh, at a later date, it will be uh, trentchapman.com is where we'll, the platform where everything will kind of be. But, um, please just reach out to yourself, Sam, and mate, and uh, pass the details on. Last question. Uh, who's been uh, your biggest hero in your life? Kobe Bryant, honestly. Yep, someone I'd never met, other side of the world, as a young kid, looking for that role model. Uh, I liked basketball, uh, but not as much as I was attracted to the mentality of Kobe. Yeah. Um, the recent passing of him this year, mate, rattled me because that was my father figure. 
you know, it most certainly was. And uh, I also think that it's important on that to tell people that don't undervalue, you know, the people that you may not know and the influence that they can have on you and vice versa. Don't underestimate the influence you can have on people that you don't know. Yeah, that's powerful. Well, Trent, it's been a, a remarkable conversation. Uh, when people initially said, uh, you got to get hold of Trent uh, and hear his story and, and hear what he has to say and the things he's doing, uh, never did I think we were going down this path. Um, in all honesty, I had no idea about your own experience. Uh, it's been so... Uh, it's been really interesting uh, to hear what you've been put through, what you've gone through in your life, the adversity and resilience that you've been through in, you know, so far. But I, I know that there's a lot more of Trent to come uh, and we're looking forward to seeing what comes of that. Uh, but mate, you're certainly a role model to uh, many other people and someone who's actually living the values that he's trying to instill in others. So mate, um, congratulations on, uh, on a really great life with purpose at the moment. Um, and thanks for coming on. Mate, I appreciate it, Sam. And, uh, mate, uh, thank you for, for not just having me, mate, but for also being that voice and uh, um, getting that message out there, mate. So small things. Mate, we appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks, buddy. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.